brought to you by Penguin. So for my first book, I became a correspondent for promiscuity and binge drinking. And for this this book... God, the mantle has fallen from my shoulders. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the award-winning, don't you know, Penguin podcast with me, Sue Perkins. And I want you to know I had nothing to do with that award. This is the place where leading authors reveal how they harness their creativity by choosing a handful of objects that inspire them. Uh, My guest today is a columnist, an author and a broadcaster. Her first book, Everything I Know About Love, was shortlisted for Waterstones Book of the Year and won the 2018 National Book Awards Prize for Best Autobiography. From 2015 to 2017, she wrote a dating column for the Sunday Times Style magazine and has since been a regular columnist. She also hosts the extremely popular High Low podcast with Pandora Sykes. Her first work of fiction, Ghosts, follows Nina Dean, a successful food writer in her early 30s, who is constantly being reminded of the passing of time around her. Her beloved pa has the first stages of dementia and a foray into the world of dating apps has become incredibly complicated. It's Dolly Alderton. Dolly, welcome and hello. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. I am delighted to be here with you. Likewise. Now, your book, which I loved, by the way, feels very, very timely. Your character, Nina, experiences ghosting. For those who are not familiar with that, what that means in modern parlance, what, what is it and why has it become part of sort of dating culture? Something that I really love about when you write a book is you become an accidental correspondent for something. So for my mm. first book, I became a correspondent for promiscuity and binge drinking. And for this, <laughs> for this book... Thank God, the mantle has fallen from my shoulders. <laughs> it's like a relay, I just took it from you. Oh, thank and, God. <laughs> and now I'm the sort of official correspondent for... Men disappearing. Um, So ghosting is when you are in a form of a relationship with someone. I would say anything from kind of three dates onwards and the person who you've been seeing disappears without a trace. Sometimes it's more incremental and they will they'll phase you out and they will suddenly become colder or more sporadic with their messages and or their contact or they will become more formal. But ultimately what ghosting is, is someone exiting the relationship without giving you any goodbye or any reason as to why they've gone. None of that's done physically, really. It's just suddenly not answering texts. And, and actually yes. that was an incredibly moving part of the book where you go from this lovely prose into suddenly these choppy text messages where you're actually seeing a woman realising what's happening to her and the pleas becoming ever more insistent. Uh, it's very, I found that very, very painful. I mean, we will return to that. But I think the way the way you suddenly went into sort of text format there was very, very powerful. Thank you. And you know what, that's one of the greatest compliments that that I, I can be given for that book is I've had friends say to me, I feel sick and just send me pictures of those pages because I think it is such a specific feeling of when you can feel someone drawing away from you and when all you really want is to ask for clarification or for ask for reassurance. But obviously in the world of, well, particularly in heterosexual dating, the one thing you're not allowed to be as a woman is emotional. So you feel kind of, stifled by this acquiescence to this thing that's happening and you have to just sort of watch it happen. And you're turned into, by no fault of your own, uh, the pursuer. 
Oh, yeah. Which is not a role that anybody really truly wishes to inhabit. I mean, perhaps in sort of courtly love romance sort of uh, tales from, from the medieval period, but not really anybody since then, I wouldn't have said. Yeah, and it's this kind of humiliating thing of the specific tone of that of that pursuing is you find yourself answering questions that they're not asking you. It's so humiliating, mm. that kind of desperate jollying along. And I think most people experience it. It's definitely people on online dating apps experience it at some point in their life. And once it's happened to you once, it mm. is like a recurring injury. When someone does it to you again, you feel the old pain of it. It's such yeah. a specific feeling. And I, th- I think... What's really painful for me, anyway, reading it was the the extent that women try to normalise situations that are abnormal. So just mm. almost apologising for asking basic questions of a man who was in their bed perhaps the night before and who is now not even prepared to engage with a "How are you?" or mm. "You know, what's your day like?" or "Where have you gone?" Exactly. I think so much of it, particularly in dating culture, romantic culture marital culture domestic culture even is about just being as small as possible making sure that you don't scare your male partner off that's the worst thing that you can do in the way that you scare someone off is with harassing them or demanding too much being too emotional and it's this kind of fear that does bubble bubble beneath often I think in kind of in quite in quite traditional dating setups. And I think something I wanted to explore with Nina is she doesn't think she's a traditional person. She no. thinks that she's someone who is very aware of these kind of gender inequalities and does push against it in so many other parts of her life. And yet these structures are so ancient, they're so ritualistic, they're so biological, anthropological, they're hard mm. to consciously, constantly buck against sometimes. I don't want to sort of tread too deeply into how much autobiography exists in this novel, but but is the experience of being ghosted one that's familiar to you? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think I was just fascinated by it because it just felt like for a period it was in the air. It just felt like Mm. it was in the atmosphere of every single woman that I knew and all the conversations around dating and dating apps and conducting relationships there just felt like there was this mysterious sort of thriller like threat of are they going to disappear cynically as a story writer story writer author I think is the worst well, I like story, no but I like story writer as someone who, who <laughs> welcome so to the mind. penguin podcasts where we talk to story <laughs> but you know what I prefer story writer Story writer. Yeah. Well, as a story writer, it was just delicious and seductive to me because I was like, this is how you get people to part two. Because when someone disappears, anyone who's been ghosted knows it's a traumatic thing, but it's also bloody exciting when you really are, you know, you become a detective for this person and the relationship and you go back through your messages and you replay all your behaviours to try and find kind of forensic evidence. What happened? Where did they go? Did they die indeed? But I think you're also looking as a woman for evidence of your guilt. Again, that's something that's hardwired. You're looking at what did I do wrong? And that seems to be the first principle in these, in the aftermath of a ghosting is like, I was too needy, I wanted too much, I said the wrong thing, they didn't like my family. 
I haven't experienced it myself, but I suppose I've spent most of my life in same-sex relationships where it's it's it, <laughs> no one's ghosting. It's the opposite. If there's people, two people just running frantically towards each other and then they can't get out of it six years later. Um, yeah, I think women on the whole are generally a bit kinder to each other. And also my lesbian friend said to me that ghosting can't happen in the gay community particularly in a city as much because people people know each other more whereas there's it's much more kind of sprawling and anonymous with the potentially when you meet someone on a dating app if you're heterosexual yeah and I have to say I don't I I don't know of any heterosexual friend of any age really that hasn't gone through exactly what your your character has has, has been through traditionally on this podcast we, we ask guests to, to sort of proffer an object that's inspired them yes I love that and you've chosen a glass of overpriced and not quite cold enough white wine, uh, which I love, and Picasso's nude woman in a red armchair, which we shall investigate shortly. Your first yes. object, though, is a song uh, by George Michael. Why this particular song? One of the main themes of the book is a kind of question of identity, of what makes us who we are, what mm. makes us lovable, what makes us compatible, how do we connect to other people through our selfhood and dating apps is is obviously a very interesting place to look at that that question and that anxiety because what you're doing on a dating app is you're handing over basically an identity cv you're saying here here i am here are the multitudes of me in four pictures and Mm. my age my location my sexual preference my political stance and you know a picture of my dog or whatever Mm. and there's something very millennial about it because we were the first ones to create those identity CVs on MySpace or on Mm. Facebook. And I knew that in the first line of the book, I wanted something that cut right into the middle of that theme. And I wanted to introduce my character. And I thought, okay, maybe I'm going to have something in her name. And she attaches story to it Mm. a sense of identity, a sense of memory, a sense of family, a sense of quirkiness. And I decided to give her the middle name George because The Edge of Heaven by Wham was number one the day that she was born. So her family gave her the middle name George Nina George Dean. And I thought that was a kind of good place to jump off from with that with that kind of conversation about identity. Your name, the name that you're born with, is your first clue from your parents. Yeah, it's exactly. it's what is the hidden meaning? You know, does you know does it have a uh, is it exotic? You know, I, my my name is just a standard librarian's name from the nineteen seventies, but you know, I've imbued it with a sense of incredible sort of um, uh, color and 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 sort of interest by by finding out that it's the Hebrew for Lily. But I doubt that ever entered is my it? parents. Yes, but that won't have occurred to my parents in a sort of two up two down in Croydon in the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. But what I really liked. About about you picking Edge of Heaven is, of course, it's complicated yeah. with sort of heavy BDSM um, <laughs> overtones. And I really enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed, you know, sort of finally realising that, as you say, the narratives that she was born with and has completely and utterly adopted without question mm. get challenged. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's you're so right about about it's the first clue of who you are. It's the first kind of relic of self, isn't it? Even mm. though it's inherited that your parents 
give to you. By the way, I think Sue is um, a very classic name. Um, oh, thank you. I've truncated it much to my mother's annoyance. And if anyone calls me Susan, I sit up like a meerkat in oh, terror. Really? Oh, in t- absolute terror. A, f- a friend of mine, a producer, has worked this out and I just get emails when I haven't done what I'm supposed to do, which is frequently. The emails will just have the subject head of Susan in caps. And honestly, oh, no. I have a Pavlovian sort of response. Yeah. Yeah, I find the worst is the, in the top of an email when it's your name in full and then a dash. Susan, oh. dash, call me yes. when you can. It's the, actually the worst email. I actually just gave myself goosebumps thinking about oh, it. Oh, call me when you can just sounds like an emergency and already that I'd Horrible. be just anxious. Horrible. There's so much to love in this book. What also resonated with me was the idea in your 30s that your friendships which have been unwavering and resolute and you've you've been around these people seven so in my case sometimes seven nights a week mm. they start to have the audacity to form relationships and have children and don't yeah. have the space and time to indulge in your perpetual adolescence with you <laughs> yeah yeah it's very selfish it's yeah and i i one of the greatest and most painful moments of my life was being at my beloved Mel's wedding. Not because I wanted oh, to marry really? her, but because I and I gave a speech and I literally thought I was going to throw up because it yeah. felt like, oh God, you've grown up and that's going to make me have to do the same. And of course, nothing really changed fundamentally. And I, I've often said that modern fiction doesn't deal with platonic female friendships enough. And this really does and really squarely looks to it. And, and was that something you consciously wanted to do? Yeah, definitely. You know, my first book ended up being this sort of accidental love letter to female friendship. It was like a big love story about my best friends, which I hadn't anticipated when I first started writing it. And when I sort of took that book on the road and I met lots of readers, something that kept happening is women in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s would say to me, by the way, just to let you know, this manifesto that you have about friendship is completely adorable. It's going to get really tough <laughs> to uphold it when you get into your 30s because often the turmoil that hits is like quite practical. It's about your child who needs childcare or your partner who's just been made redundant. And these are things which all become quite difficult to navigate in a friendship and it becomes quite difficult to retain that sort of just easy intimacy where the pace is the same in your lives the Mm. language is shared that's very much a a, you know 28 year old stance and I am the grand old age of 32 now and I think I wanted to look at how that morphs as you get into the second act of your life and beyond. The love remains but the you're not uh, on the same journey. I mean, all my friends were on the same journey as I was until probably, yeah. as you say, my very, very early 30s. And even then, when we started working and a few of us got lucky, we, we just bought flats next to each other. So we tried yeah. as best we could to carry on. Mm. Can I ask you something about Mel's wedding? Yes, of course. I'm always available for supplementaries. <laughs> Did you tell her how difficult you found that day? Yes, and I subsequently wrote about it, actually. I mean, I sort of tried to find the words for her as a sort of matron of honour or whatever I was, you know. I tried Mm. to find the words in my speech and I just sort of see her as she's one coil to my other coil and together we make this sort of slightly mutant creature. I'd been been dating somebody, let's let's say casually, let's say that. And um, (laughs) I didn't really know her, but I I came back and I was aware for some reason, Mel's lovely, gorgeous, talented sister, Koki, had made us all wear sort of pink pyjamas Shanghai Tang silk pink pyjamas, I think. So I turned up 
to this flat in Dalston to a guy I didn't really know in pink pyjamas and just sobbed all night. That must have been fun. Um, but I think yeah. I wrote about saying we've always gone to the same places together and you're going somewhere that I can't reach. And obviously after that, she went on to have kids and, and that felt like another frontier that, that, that I wasn't going to be party to. And now, it's, of course, yeah. it doesn't seem it doesn't seem yeah. important at all because we talk to each other the same way as we did when we were seventeen. But it's so interesting that I, I know that feeling so well, and that feeling of you're going to a different country, and I don't have a passport to it, yeah. and therefore there's going to be this like huge distance between us. But really, what that is indicative of is the premium that we place on romantic love and domestic life, because mm. there are so many things you have done in your work and in your travels that she would have every right to feel the anxiety of, well, Sue's going to go to this place at the other edge of the world, or she's got this huge gig. She's going somewhere that I can't connect her. But for some reason that isn't, it doesn't have the same fatalism to it. Yes, that's very true. You don't, you don't, um, you don't lose a friend to travel or to yeah. experience outside of a relationship that's that's an inter- really good observation that's true isn't it um <laughs> it, there's a fabulous bit in the book where nina's friend lola who's just brilliant tells a, a cautionary tale which is very funny about trusting too early on in the dating process let's have a listen to that now jan's out in brockwell park one day with glenn the husband no the dog she slurred exasperatedly and she sees this man much younger than her he's very tall spanish sort of Tony Danza type. He comes over and he's all, cute dog. And she's like, thanks. And he's all, the owner's even cuter. And bless Jan, bless her. She hasn't been chatted up since the 70s or whatever. So she's beside herself. They go for some shisha, get to know each other. He's called Jorge. He's a locksmith. He's from Girona. They exchange numbers. Long story short, they start this affair. Wow. I know. Who meets in a park these days? Well, that's it, isn't it? So Jorge is telling her he loves her. He wants her to leave her husband. He wants the two of them to start a new life together, with Glenn as well, in Cardiff. Why Cardiff? Dunno. And she's thinking, this could be my last great chance at a great passionate love affair. I want to feel that one more time. But what about her lovely husband and the cruises to Iceland? Lust, Lola said knowingly. It makes fools of us. What happened? She writes a letter to her husband explaining everything and apologising from the bottom of her heart. Tells him she will always love him. Thanks him for the happiest years of her life. Leaves it on the table. Then goes to Victoria Coach Station where she's agreed to meet Jorge. And Jorge, she said with a deep in-breath, never showed up. No. Yes. She waited there for ten hours. Did she call him? Went straight to voicemail. Went to his flat? He'd disappeared. What did she do? She went back home, tried to beg for forgiveness, explained that she'd temporarily lost her mind, but her husband wouldn't let her in. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Yep, I wouldn't speak to her. He'd even changed the locks. That was Ghosts, read there by Holiday Granger, and written, of course, by my wonderful guest, Dolly Alderton. It's available to buy and download now. Uh, There's a link in the programme notes of this episode. Dolly, this is your first work of fiction. Yes. What was it like hearing it read? Did it make you feel an august storyteller? It's strange. It is strange hearing Holiday Granger's 
beautiful, dreamy, dulcet. She's um, amazing, isn't she? Oh, I love her. I feel so lucky that she that she read the story. It is strange because I'm obviously so used to being so at the centre of my work and and hearing it in my voice. And I did the audiobook for my first uh, for my first book, but I was so keen to have an actor read it because I wanted to put that distance between yeah, me and cool. and the work because you know it is a work of fiction and I think it's going to take quite a long time quite rightly, for people to think of me as someone who writes about made-up things rather than things that have happened to me. You said that you find writing this, although you said it's strange listening to, you know, the, the, the audiobook, you have said that writing it was a lot less stressful than writing a memoir. Why in particular was that? Oh, it was just a joy. I truly loved every single day of writing this book. I didn't... That's great. I know. I've never had this before, the creative project. I was I jumped out of bed every morning. I was so excited to write it. And I think, as you know, when you've written memoir or nonfiction, it's just you really do put yourself through the ringer. It's like such a mad thing to choose to do, I think, to go back and reflect on, mm. you know, your biggest mistakes and the kind of contradictions of who you are and the complexities of who you are and the idiocy of who you are often mm. um and to do that in a in a truthful way it's it's just very exposing and it's very tiring and it can be it's just very emotional whereas i just felt like i was going on holiday every day into this girl's head and i i really tried to make her quite different to me and obviously because it's first person narration what we share is a sense of humor but mm. in terms of the way she thinks about things the way she communicates her parents her friendship group her dating life her sex life everything is so was so different to me so it was just like putting on a new skin every day and having a kind of holiday from my from my own brain well, it's such I a really fully realized it. new skin oh you know, thank that's a you. real person from the very first page thank you and so it much fe- it feels autobiographical just it's just not your autobiography I want to move on to your next object, though, which is that we've trailed it and I'm very interested now in the lukewarm glass of white wine. Yeah. Why have you chosen that? When I was writing this novel, I cleared a year for that to be my main work and I took it really seriously. So I I had three months of planning it. The big thing that I did, because I'd been so busy after everything I know about love had come out, I'd... I really had to shelve socialising um, for a while. And my mm. life was just so about work. And a vow that I made to myself when I had this year of writing the novel was that I was going to socialise nonstop because I truly, truly adhere to the school of thought that conversation is the workshopping for good writing. Mm. And I'm very lucky that I have an abundance of friends in my life who are truthful funny, sharp, unafraid of emotional honesty. And I was like, right, I'm going to mine, I'm going to mine this source. I'm going to be at the pub with those girls three nights a week while I'm writing this book. And I really, really see it invigorate my story and invigorate my prose. And I really thank them so much because it's it was so much of that, of Ghost, as it came off the back of just conversations and thinking and shared anecdotes and shared pain and shared silliness and my friend Caroline O'Donoghue who's a 
brilliant author has this analogy that I so adhere to that she says, you need to be putting just good trees in the chipper and then good wood chip will come out. Mm. So all those nights that I had with my friends drinking not quite cold enough overpriced white wine in the pub, it was just a forest of beautiful trees being shoved in that chipper. And what's great is not too much white wine because you remembered it all. You managed to, it, either either on a conscious or subconscious level, it's just sort of permeated and you managed to get it down on, on the page. Yeah, well, the key is is the Hemingway thing of write drunk, edit sober. I would just the next day mm. have this sort of notebook of scrawls and I'd have to, <laughs> have to, make, have to make sense of it. Oh, yeah, I don't know about you, but for me, those relationships and conversation are the things that, that really energise the writing for me. Everything. I sort of, my friends are my compass. So I, if I get lost, I need to just, there'll always be a north, south, east and west I can ring and go, hang yeah. on a minute. Yeah. I seem to have gone down a very strange cul-de-sac. Can you get me out? So they're just always, there's always jokes, mainly at my expense, but they're, they're always there. Although it's interesting because your character Nina says that, that she has a different response to groups of women being together. So you say that you've written a character that in many ways is the sort of, the reverse of you or the opposite of you? Yes. something. When I was forming Nina and I was thinking about how she'd be different to people that I know, what would be what would be this holiday for me, for me to, to try a kind of foreign experience and a foreign way of thinking? And I knew that she was someone who is, yes, very unsentimental, quite cynical, quite unromantic, quite logical and where my head went to at one point was, oh, she would have hated everything I know about love and I think she would hate me. <laughs> and it was just like a really small moment of just being like, oh, yeah, that's that's going to help me out working out who that girl is. The one thing that strikes me is how singular uh, this character you've created is because we're... The traditional trope for for a woman in, in in a novel who has been ghosted is to become in quotes irrational, upset, feverish, you know, sort of have a sort of febrile energy, and mm. um, and actually, what's extraordinary is her composure. I thought, I mean, throughout that, I was going, I'd be round there. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'd be I'd be round there probably with my dad and a skeleton key <laughs> and a megaphone and um you know and a bucket of paint and a chainsaw and all sorts. I mean, God, that's a lot to carry. As I've said that, but you know they would be you know because I'm I'm very emotional and and you yeah, know um, led by emotions and, and yeah. be quite neurotic. This character, for all you know, Nina, for all that she she goes through stuff that's incredibly painful. There's a, a real solidity to her. She's entering a place of new adulthood because she sees the fading of her, particularly her father, who's also, of course, becoming a ghost in front of her. All their shared mm. points of reference are disappearing in the same way that Max is disappearing, mm. and which I found a really very profound parallel. But, yeah, she's very contained in her reaction. One of the great treats of fiction that I hadn't anticipated is that it's a place of correction. It's a place of control. It's a place where you can say, I want to write all the wrongs of my life. And one of them is I wanted her to be someone who is not easily untethered. I wanted her to be someone who had a solid sense of self, a righteous sense of what she deserves. And that is something that has eluded me for a lot of my romantic life. And there are other small things that I did in the book that, that again, was this kind of correction of 
how I wish things could have been for me. And they weren't like, I wanted her to have a really healthy relationship with her ex-boyfriend because that's something that I've always dreamed of. So it was just such a joy to have 350 pages where I can explore what that might be like in a parallel life. And he's a good, you know, Joe is a good a good man who's who's grown up like she has. He's also very solid and very rational. I needed one redeeming man <laughs> in the whole bloody I just, book. <laughs> it's in, yes. Of late, I've been writing one thinking, yes, the good man, please. There are lots in the Because I know, you know, my, my family's populated with good men and my friendship groups too. It's important not to be nihilistic about that. And it's actually something that I really had to watch myself with was when I was writing it about not being too hetero-pessimistic, I think is the word, um, because I was feeling pretty hetero-pessimistic. <laughs> pessimism is genius. Yeah, yeah, it's a real thing. It I can bring some thing. homo-pessimism if that's okay. <laughs> I can bring a real silo of that, but that's for another time. Can you, please, can you, to make us feel better? Because I just keep oh my looking days. at you guys and being like, you guys are nailing it. We need to learn so much from you Let guys. Let me disabuse you of that. I mean, I don't want to speak for anyone other than myself, nor could I, but yes. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I could disabuse you of that in a heartbeat. Um, I'm going to move to your next object, which is... Well, it's a location. It's Canonbury Square. Why this one? Yes. Years and years and years ago, I was in my early 20s and I was on my way to a party, a house party, some random postcode that I hadn't... I thought I hadn't been to before. And I found myself in the dark, bottle of miniature Glens clanking in the clutch bag. Oh, the glass. The, <laughs> the burrito. <laughs> and I found myself in a square, this North London square, Canonbury Square. Hmm. And I felt this extraordinary sense of predetermination of history, of something so ancient, something primal in my recognition of it. And I realised it was the square that, the flat that my parents brought us up in until I was about seven was around the corner. And that was the square where I went to every Saturday with my dad to to learn how to ride my bike. I, I, I think every adult has had that feeling of accidentally returning to their past. You can't quite describe what it's like. It feels like you finally have landed on a word that you've been trying to remember mm. for 23 years and everything suddenly makes sense. And I just sat on the bench uh, in that square. And I think it really just drove home to me how important those formative years are, how much they form the the bones of you, whether you're aware of it or not. And I think that must have lodged somewhere in my head because that then became a huge overarching theme of the novel that I then wrote, you know, 10 years later. Yeah, I, I always feel I've gone back to sort of school, you know, Everything feels like a like a model village, like I'm a giant going through it. Not just physically small, although often those places will seem bigger in your memory than they turn out to be in actuality, but just the fact that you've time has stretched you away from them and when you come back everything is twisty. Yeah, twisty. That I think that's exactly how I put it in the book, because in the book Nina ends up accidentally mm. And in, in the square where she grew up on, and I think it just says so much about how powerful those years are. And, mm. you know, I obviously have done Freudian therapy, so it's always something that I'm I'm amazed you had time for drinks three three nights a week if you were doing <laughs> <laughs> You don't do anything by halves, do you? No, lying on that chaise lounge 
with an overpriced glass of white wine. No. Um, your final object, an incredibly famous painting, uh, Picasso's Nude Woman in a Red Armchair. Why did you pick that one? After everything I know about love came out, I went to Paris on my own for a bit. And I went to the Picasso Museum in the Marais and I stood in front of a painting. It wasn't that painting, but it was a painting of a lover in the in his Cubist style that we know. And I was very moved by it because it struck me as such an art form to be able to look at the person that you love and know them and see them so fully that you can rearrange them. You can rearrange all the features of them in an mm. absurd reconfiguration and that brings out even further the essence of who they are that felt like an incredibly romantic thing and when I was writing this book a lot of what I wanted to explore was how much of what we love of a person is the facts of who they are in front of us and how much of it is the gaze that we put on them Mm. and particularly looking at the the storyline with dementia as well when I did research about dementia something that I heard over and over again is that the sufferer ostensibly became unrecognisable in many ways. There was something of their soul, something of their essence that remained until their last breath. Again, Picasso and his gaze and the Rubik's Cube of that gaze of loving someone and seeing them. And it's not that they're demolished, they're just rearranged in a different way. Yes, they're sort of anagrammed, aren't they? Exactly. Spiritually anagrammed. Yeah, exactly. Which it isn't, but let's pretend it is. No, I like it. I I can feel art history students uh, using that uh, (laughs) from next week. Um, But yeah, so Picasso and that painting became uh, a bit of a recurring image in the book. I use it a couple of times. I sense that we have to draw a close, but I could talk to you for a lot longer because it's such a good book. I'm truly grateful that I got to read it and I can't wish you enough luck with, with publication. Thank you so much, Sue. I've loved talking to you. Likewise. Dolly, thank you for your time. Thank you. Yay! (laughs) Do remember to subscribe, comment and vitally spread the word about this podcast. It helps us to make some more. Uh, Should you have an Alexa-enabled device, you can find us there too, presumably just by shouting at it. Nikita Gill, The Girl and the Goddess. From the acclaimed poet and internet sensation comes a collection of poetry exploring Hindu mythology and legends. With lyricism and mesmerising imagery, we follow the life of a young girl as she explores her identity and what it means to master your own destiny. There are gods that you know and gods that you do not know. But they are the same gods. This is the part of the story you must recognise before they teach you a different tale. Our creation is unique, as three gods become our triumvirate. Call them Trimurti, the ancient Sanskrit word for three forms. The Girl and the Goddess is available to download now.